Good morning. It is a pleasure to be back in Buffalo. Uh, Introduced as a Bills fan, I must say that in my head there were a few adjectives that maybe should have gone before that. Chief among them maybe was long-suffering, but I'm happy to be back. Uh, I want to begin by thanking pastors uh, Brian, Mario, and Milo for the opportunity to be here preaching the Word. Another pastor friend of mine says that Uh, Letting somebody stand in your pulpit and preach is like letting somebody drive your car with your family in it. It's a great privilege and responsibility and demonstrates great trust. And so I want to thank the pastoral staff uh, for their love for you and for the privilege and trust that they've bestowed upon me. I'll begin observing the snow that is on the ground this morning which is a wonderful way to be in Buffalo, although there hadn't been any yet. And in light of that, I'll say that I ski, though I am not a skier. Part of what that means is I'm not very good at moguls. Now, for you non-skiers, moguls are the big bumps on the hill that you see skiers in the Winter Olympics go down, and they bounce back and forth and back and forth. Moguls are probably one of the most difficult technical aspects of downhill skiing. Again, I'm not very good at them, but one thing I've learned is that your position as you leave one mogul is very important if you want to be able to handle the next one well. Being out of position as you leave this mogul could mean disaster on the next mogul. Trust me, I know this from plenty of experience. But I think it functions well for us as an analogy, uh, as our lives as Christians and for the life of Randall Church as a whole. That as we come to the end of one calendar year, we're coming off of one mogul. And we're wanting to ensure that we are in a good position as we approach this next mogul of 2019, that we can ski it well and not fall down. You don't want to ski 2019 the way I ski moguls. We want to start the new year well. We want to finish 2018 in a good position, with good form, balance, intention, and approach. Since the next preaching series here at Randall is going to be an extensive look through Paul's epistle to Romans. I thought that would be a helpful place for us to evaluate our position, consider that, and get ourselves ready for this next mogul of 2019. Our scripture reading is going to be from Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, and chapter 16, 25 through 27. You can find that first reference on page 1177 in the Pew Bibles. Again, Romans 1, 1 to 7. I've chosen these two passages that function as bookends for the letter of Romans. Often in New Testament epistles or New Testament books as a whole, when an author writes, they will highlight some of their key themes both at the beginning and at the end, and they will develop them in between. So as we're looking at the book of Romans as a whole today, I figured this would provide us some good rails, some good boundaries. So would you stand if you're able as I read Romans 1, 1 through 7, and then 16, 25 to 27. God's word reads, Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the final three verses, starting at 1625. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The great German reformer Martin Luther wrote this about the book of Romans. Romans is worthy, not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Such is the body of literature that we begin examining this morning and you will carry on for the next weeks. It's impossible to overstate the significance of Romans, not only for the contemporary church, but for Western civilization. Because of its significance, there is a lot written about Romans. You could probably fill the pews in this church with all of the books and articles and encyclopedia entries written about this letter. We won't go into all of it. Today, I'm going to heed a very wise Ghanaian proverb that says, don't be like a child who stuffs his mouth so full he can't chew any of it. We're going to be measured in our approach and modest in our ambitions as we consider all of Romans this morning. As we get our bearings in the book, remember it's a letter, it's an epistle. And so the two very important things as you consider an epistle is the writer and the recipients. Who wrote it? Who's opening the mail at the other end? Let's start with a snapshot, a picture of the people living in Rome at the time, and a picture of what Paul, the author of the letter, is up to. The readers of the letter are the people of the congregation in Rome. They're opening it probably around the year 57 AD, and there is now, at this point, 
25 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, a vibrant group of congregations meeting in homes throughout the capital city of the Roman Empire. Being at the heart of the Roman Empire, their reputation for faith and obedience has spread far and wide. They are well known. They are renowned because of their obedient faith. But some division is beginning in the churches. It's not a full-blown crack in the foundation, but there are some maybe weaknesses there. There are seeds of division, which they haven't blossomed yet, but are beginning to take root. Particularly between a few groups of people, the traditional religious community that was probably made up mostly of ethnic Jews, now believing and in the church, and between these young upstart Gentiles who are now in the faith but do not carry the traditions of the Old Testament law with them. Division is seen most clearly when it comes to matters of conscience. The strong in the faith, Gentiles, have very free consciences that do not require them to do many of the things that were required in the law, and so they go about their way. But The weaker brothers and sisters, those of Jewish background, their consciences are constrained by what they think is appropriate behavior for a Christian from the law. And so there's tensions here because there's consciences that are in conflict. And this led then to the weak in faith looking at the strong and saying, well, you're doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. You must not be very Christian. If you were really Christian, you'd be doing the things we are. And the strong in faith are looking down at the Jews and saying, ah, well, you just don't really understand the gospel as well as you should. And if you did, you'd be living like we are. So there's the seeds of some tension at this point. The weak are judging the strong, and the strong are taking an arrogant, uh, condescending view of their brothers and sisters in the church, the weak. Paul needs to address this. Situation in Rome, then, is a strong foundation, but beginning of weakness with division. Well, who's the writer? Paul, at this stage, is a mature missionary, preacher, church planner. He's been ministering for over 20 years in the Mediterranean basin, and at this point, he said that he has preached so much, he doesn't have room to preach anymore around there. He's covered the region. There is market saturation, you might say done everything he can, and so he's looking for new markets. He's looking for a new geographical region where he can take the gospel, and he sets his eyes on Spain. He's going west. He wants the church in Rome to help him get there. So that's our writer and our recipient. The recipients are facing present division, and Paul is looking for assistance on a preaching mission. How's Paul going to address this church, a church he's never met, a church that he did not plant or begin, has no presence in Rome previously, a church that's renowned for their faith and their obedience, but apparently need a little bit of a reminder. How does he address them? Well, he does so primarily with a majestic, magisterial 
exposition, explanation, presentation of the gospel. The gospel of God concerning his son Jesus, crucified and risen. A gospel that fulfills the promises long written down. A gospel of grace. This makes up the first and longest section of the book encompassing chapters 1 through 8. Even just look as you have your Bibles open, hopefully, to chapter 1. We'll have a lot of places uh, that we could look at today. I'll direct you just to a few. Look at how Paul opens his letter. Look at how he describes himself right at the beginning. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel. In verse 15, he says he's eager to preach the gospel. In 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it brings salvation and reveals God's righteousness in the world. From there, he moves in the chapters 1 through 8, as we mentioned, to a consideration of this gospel, a detailed argument for the gospel. And then in 9 to 16, he offers instructions for this church congregation in light of that gospel. So, if I were to give you a 30,000-foot view of Romans, very high level, very generic, I would say something like this. Through God's gospel, the church unifies in love, mobilizes in mission, and glorifies God. That's our argument for today. That's our point. That's the takeaway. That's what you need to hear. If you're hearing a 30,000 foot view of Romans is this, through God's gospel concerning his son, the church unifies in love, mobilizes in mission, and glorifies God. That's also how we'll approach our time this morning. First, we'll spend a few moments looking at the gospel in Romans 1 through 8. Second, we'll see how that gospel both unifies and mobilizes a church congregation. And third, we'll consider how a gospel church glorifies God in the world. What is the gospel in Romans then? Gospel in Romans, very short, briefly, might be something like this. Paul first demonstrates the guilt of all humanity, of you and me, Romans, Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, you name it demonstrates the guilt of all humanity, which God then addresses with a gracious gift of righteousness as he brings them to glory. Guilt, gift, glory. Put it another way. Paul demonstrates God's wrath on sin, but then his provision of righteousness as he moves them towards a future redemption. God moves us from wrath to redemption by gifting us righteousness. This is, in short, Paul's gospel. Look at how he explains wrath right here, starting in 1 verse 18. This is a place for you to look. Immediately after he speaks of his eagerness to preach the gospel, he begins by describing the wrath of God. Now, that may seem to be a very odd place to you to begin a discussion of the gospel as God's righteous and holy anger against human guilt. That seems to be a non-starter for most people, but not for Paul. And here's why. If you look, you get this little little word, for, to begin verse 18. 
And in fact, the reason why Paul is so eager to speak about wrath is because that is his motivation for preaching. It demonstrates a need for the gospel. He says, man, look how bad things are. This is why I've got to preach. This is why I've got to go. And this is why you've got to be with me. The wrath of God is bringing a death sentence to all who turn. And so what Paul then does is he addresses our self-confidence, our false sense of security that thinks that, yeah, God's wrath might be for some people, but probably not for me, probably not. So now with pinpoint accuracy, he addresses a few groups. He begins in 18, chapter 1, 18 to 32, by addressing very wise and cultured folks who think they've got it all together. Frankly, they don't actually pay a whole lot of attention to God. They go about their own way. Thank you very much. And Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed. He then turns in the first half of chapter 2 and he talks about the one who thinks that God is way too kind to judge me. God's kindness is infinite. He would never judge. Who would do that? But then this man himself turns and judges others, thinking that he will escape. Finally, he turns to the proud religious folks, folks who are sitting in the pews on Sunday, folks maybe like you and I, folks who boast in their knowledge of the scriptures, folks who know God. And he says that those who actually know God will condemn such a person. It all comes to a head then in 320 where Paul writes this. He concludes his section on wrath by saying, by works of the law, by human effort, no human being can be justified in God's sight. But actually all the world will be held accountable to God because through the law comes knowledge of sin. It shows us how bad and how big this problem really is, this problem of sin and wrath. Apparently, Paul thinks it to be of the utmost significance and severity. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. For kids in the room, maybe you'll resonate a little bit with this. Sin and its consequences, they're not just like a bruise. It's not just like when you fall and scrape your knee and mommy gives it a kiss and it goes away. It's not something that just a painkiller like ibuprofen will handle and it will self-heal. It's, it's not even like a cold that you've got your sniffles and your congestion and that you treat the symptoms and you're back on your way in a week. That's not what sin is like. Sin is... is Sin is like an aggressive cancer. But if you don't treat it right away, you've got a problem. It requires a serious, dramatic intervention. This problem is between a guilty people and a holy God. It's not something that could be safely ignored. Thus, the gospel is dealing with the most significant and important of scenarios. It is saving people from sin and wrath. How does it save then is the question. 
How do we move from this wrath? Paul answers it in the very next section. He says that we move from wrath to a redemption by receiving God's righteousness. And that's where he turns in 321. Take a look. Whereas in 118, the wrath of God was being revealed. Now in 321, it says the righteousness of God has been manifested. So now at this point, God is providing his own righteousness through faith in Jesus. The guilty are given a gift. To say it another way, we who were under God's wrath are now declared righteous. Do you see it in verse 24? Chapter 3, verse 24. It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. This word justified is a word that we probably don't pay enough attention to. But what it means is that God, as a judge in a courtroom, looks and gives a verdict of not guilty. Not guilty. You're free from the charges. But that might raise another question for you. Well, how can God do that? Is it really just that easy? How can God legitimately tell you yeah, you, that you are righteous. If you actually think you're righteous, you may want to ask a coworker, or a parent or a friend. They will quickly disabuse you of that notion. How can God say that you're righteous? Is he fibbing? Paul answers that in 25 through 26. The wrath that God has for sin has not just vaporized. It's not just disappeared. It wasn't swept under the rug. No, that is not possible, nor even is it, frankly, desirable. We don't have, nor would we want, a God who is wishy-washy or a pushover. Instead, the gospel is just this, that the wrath of God, instead of going on us, the guilty, that the wrath of God went on his son, Jesus, in his death. Do you see that? That's in verse 25. God put forward his son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus has satisfied God's wrath. God's wrath didn't disappear. It isn't just gone. He expressed it fully and completely on his own son, demonstrating his love for you and I. And if you ask me, this this is why, this is why it can only be by faith in Christ that you could attain righteousness. Because any other attempt actually doesn't deal properly with God's wrath and righteous anger at sin. No other means of attaining righteousness, not the self-justifying elitist who thinks he has no need for God. It can't be the, the unrepentant moralist who sits around in judging everybody else and thinks that he himself will escape. And it's not even the proud religious person. When you have faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven because the wrath is put on Christ and righteousness is given to you. Four and five then demonstrate really clearly, chapters four and five, that this righteousness is the greatest of gifts and it is free to anyone. 
to anyone and everyone, to all who sit under the preaching of his word and would turn, his righteousness is a gift of grace for you. Hear me on this. This, you know, I'm, I'm, who knows? We'll stop the sermon halfway because I, I don't want you to miss this part. The problem of guilt and wrath is, is devastating. There's nothing more significant, yet nothing more ignored. Nothing other than Jesus' death can adequately satisfy it. You cannot. You. There's no way for you to handle God's just anger. Nor can you attain righteousness, not by your ingenuity. You think you're going to outsmart God? You can't gain this righteousness by your international awareness or compassion. You can't gain it by your education. You can't gain it by your generosity. You can't become righteous by your family history, not by your nationality, not by your morality, and certainly not by your piety. The righteousness of God, friends, is available for you as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a God-sized problem. And he calls us to faith in his son Jesus. And that is the way that we can receive this gift of righteousness. Well, he wraps up his gospel presentation by moving us from wrath to righteousness to now redemption. He turns the page for those who have believed and gives us a confident expectation of the great things that await those who have taken up with God, those who have put their faith in him. And he says that one day all the effects of sin and wrath in this world that we see and know all too readily are going to be washed away, that the present trials and suffering, not only are they not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed, but they can't separate you from God's love. For those who start with God in resurrection, he guarantees, hear this, those who start with God in justification, faith, their happy end will be glorification. Those who cross the starting line of faith will cross the finish line of glory. He will bring you home no matter what you face. And I know that folks facing some hard stuff in this room. To answer our question then, what is the gospel in Romans? The gospel is just this, that Jesus' death and resurrection saves people from their sin by declaring them righteous and giving them hope of future glory and redemption. He takes you from guilt to glory and it's all by grace. He takes people from being under his wrath, giving them righteousness as a gift through his son and promising them a future redemption. That's the gospel. Are some of you hearing this in a new way today? Is this fresh upon your ears or impacting your heart? Are you realizing maybe your own need for Jesus and the gospel? Talk to somebody about it today. I encourage you, grab a pastor, grab an elder, grab a friend. Gospel is for you. 
All those of you in Randall Church I know are thinking, well, Kevin, I knew all that. We have good pastors. They preach us the gospel. We know. We're past that, man. What do we need the gospel for now? We're all Christians. Well, Romans were too. Romans were world-renowned for their faith. So why does Paul think it's necessary to write them the gospel? So thoroughly, might I add. People, uh, aren't people who are Christians, aren't they like ready for more practical stuff now? Come on, like, we know that. How does gospel theology help him address these issues of division and mission that we've already pointed out? Well, in every way. The fact that Paul leans on the gospel so heavy in this book teaches us something, actually, I think. For me, it shows us that the gospel is not just merely the the foundation of your belief that gets you started, but it's actually the engine that drives your ethics through your whole life. It drives the ethics of an individual Christian. It drives the ethics of a congregation. That's the gospel, and that's exactly what Paul does. So let's turn to those two issues. In the face of present division in the church, Paul writes the gospel, and he tells us this. The gospel unifies. does it in a few ways. The gospel unifies because it levels the playing field. In the same way that we talked about the universality of God's sin, that all are under it, the playing field is level. Nobody higher, nobody lower. We all begin at the same place. And at the same time, There is universal grace that is offered, that is free to everybody. In fact, Paul says that the reason God made it by faith is so that everybody could do it, even you. There's no VIP. There's no status. There's no first or second class ticket. Playing field is level. We are one in Christ. It's unified. Second, the gospel unifies by calling for believers to live lives of love. Let me have you turn to the second half of the book at this point. You can make your way towards 15, chapter 15, and I'm going to make a few comments on the way. For Paul, love is the foundational ethic for Christian and congregational life. Take a look at 12.9. For me, this was startling in my most recent study of the book, is the consistent repetition of this motif. 12.9, Paul encourages the believers, let love be genuine. 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. In 14.15, He says this, if a brother is grieved by what you eat, you remember we were talking about the strong and weak conscience matters before? That's in this, that's this context. If a brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So he leverages your ethical actions based on love for your brother. 15 is where we're going to sit for a few moments then. Concretely for Romans, 
look like to love? Well, it looks like not pleasing yourself. Take a look at 15, 1 and 2. 15, he's speaking to the strong. He says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Do you see how that changes the question? The question is no longer, what do I want? What about, what about me? What about my opinions? I've got something to say. Paul moves, he turns the question right around on us, doesn't he? How, how, how can I love my brother and sister? How, how can I build them up? How can I do good for them? It turns it right around. Well, why? Why ought we do this, Paul? Look at verse 3. Because Christ did not please himself, but actually received reproach. Went to the cross. Demonstrate his own love by giving it up. So the gospel of Jesus and his death drives our love for others. For the strong in faith, it means accommodating the weak. And for the weak in faith, it means not judging or condemning the strong. It means being willing to give up what we want and even could legitimately have for the sake of a brother or a sister. When a church gets this, it means you can happily sit down next to anybody in here. It means you're going to be behind each other's front doors. You're going to be in homes, back porches. But conversely, a church that's only chasing their own dreams and desires, a church that won't let go of their opinions, in fact, a church that has so white-knuckling their preferences, they are then inhibited from embracing anybody else. This is a church that has not reflected deeply enough on the gospel. Paul's addressing division in the church, and he calls for unity and love. Now, I'm sure there are some folks in here who say, yeah, the church, they are so divided I've been saying it for years. Well, if you're upset about it, that's good. That means you agree with the gospel because the gospel agrees with you. That church division is not good. But it also then would encourage you to give yourself to the gospel because that's how Paul wants to bring about that unity. So if that's your critique, great. I'm with you. But give yourself to the gospel and bring it whole. What keeps you from living that way? What are you holding on to? Reflection on the gospel is how Paul thinks unity is fostered. But we also need to know this. The unity of the Roman church is critical for the mission of the Roman church. There's no way that a divided church will be eager to take the gospel forward. Think about it. If they are so selfish and self-preserving and arrogant that they are not willing to sacrifice for the good of others in their own congregation, why on earth would they sacrifice for somebody else that they don't know? Think about it this way. Imagine a ship, captain, sailors, but they all have different itineraries. They all have different agendas. 
One guy wants to go south, one guy wants to go east, one guy is going fast, one guy is going slow. That ship ain't going anywhere. And I don't know a lot about sailing, but that ship ain't going anywhere. If you want to move in mission, you've got to be united in vision. Gospel unity is foundational for gospel mission. That is to say that only after a church unifies in love will it move forward, mobilize in mission. And this takes us to our second issue briefly. And a common saying here is helpful that thinking about your car, there's a reason why your windshield is so big and your rear view mirror is so small. It's because you're supposed to be looking where you're going and not where you've been. That's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to get the church to look forward with mission. He's pushing them to take the gospel further than it's been. Paul's life itself is instructive. We mentioned before that he's ministered for 20 years around the Mediterranean basin. He doesn't have any place else he can preach. He's hit all the pulpits. It's one of eager gospel proclamation that he wants to go west. You're at 15 already. You may want to look at verse 24. It says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. So in that sense, uh, he's looking for the Romans to offer him some sort of logistical and financial support in going to Spain on a preaching mission. Romans is probably, well, not probably, Romans is the greatest missionary support letter you've ever read and never knew it. (laughs) Paul's convinced that the gospel needs to continue because he understands that as far as sin has spread, so must the gospel. Since sin is worldwide, so must the preaching and proclamation. It's not just a particular church or people or nationality. It's not just there for a particular economic class. It's not for a particular language. All need the gospel without exception. So, we've seen the gospel bring unity and love and eagerness in gospel proclamation. We now consider the result of the gospel working in this way in the church. And at this point, the band can make their way. We find that when the gospel has had its way, the church glorifies God. Not just the church, but the world around the church. Paul reminds us the church of the gospel because he knows what will happen when the church reaches this place of unity and mission. God will be glorified. And this is the subject of chapter 15. Take a look starting in verse 6. Paul is praying at this point. We'll start in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony think unity with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays for unity so that, not just for the sake of being unified and together, unity is not the goal in and of itself, but he says that you would praise God with one voice. This is united worship. God's glory is the result of church unity. 
but it also shows gospel mission. Continue down in this passage, starting in verse 8. It says that Christ became a servant to the Jews to show the truthfulness, uh, God's truthfulness, and confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Why? Verse 9. Why did Jesus come? Why was he born a Jew and fulfilled the promises? Verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That is, so that the gospel would spread beyond the borders of Israel to the world. That all of heaven and earth might be under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is gospel mission. Look at every one of those Old Testament citations there in verse 9. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. These are the people who did not have the gospel or the promises of God. And Paul wants it to go there. This is a gospel church. This is proclamation mission. And what happens when that mission occurs is God is glorified. John Piper famously wrote that the reason mission exists is because worship does not. There are plenty of places in the world without the worship of God, and therefore we must go. Conclusion then. Romans reminds us that the gospel, the gospel of Christ transforms us into people who are loving in the church. And we are engaged in gospel proclamation so that many will be glorifying to God. How well are we positioned for the coming year? Are skis together and knees bent? Are we ready for the next mogul of 2019? Are you closing out the year with a sense of gospel zeal for unity and giving up of your own pleasures for the sake of love? And are you eager to spread the worship of God through mission? Are you rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God? He calls you to himself and these things through his son. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we pray in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself who died that we might live. We thank you for that great gift that you've moved us from wrath to righteousness. We praise your name together. We pray that you would move us to be people of unity, love, self-sacrifice for the sake of mission to the world and glory to God. Would you help us in the name of your son we pray, amen.